You are listening to Locally Sourced Science. Your connection to the scientific discoveries happening in the Finger Lakes community. Hello, Locally Sourced Science listeners. I'm Liz Mahood, and I'll be your host for this episode. In this episode, Locally Source Science looks at ways that people and processes can reduce their carbon footprint. We will examine how mining can be made more sustainable in Janani Hariharan's interview with Dr. Buzz Barstow from Cornell University. Then Esther Rakusen will interview Dr. Ingrid Zebol of the Paleontological Research Institute on their new exhibit called Changing Climate, Our Future, Our Choices. As part of the interview, Dr. Zabul will address lifestyle changes we can make that reduce our carbon footprint. But first up, here's Janani Hariharan interviewing Dr. Buzz Barstow about his research project, using bacteria to extract rare earth elements in a clean and sustainable way. In this segment, you'll hear about what rare earth elements are, why they're important to us, what the current problems are in mining these minerals, and how Dr. Barstow's team is working to solve some of these problems. This is Janani Hariharan for Locally Source Science, and today we're talking to Dr. Buzz Barstow from Cornell University about using microbes to mine rare earth minerals. Hi, I'm Buzz Barstow. Um, I'm, a, I'm an assistant professor in biological uh, and environmental engineering here at Cornell. Uh, my lab works on synthetic biology uh, and sustainable energy, um, and uh, we in particular, we're working on uh, a project to mine rare earth elements, which are uh, really important ingredients for sustainable energy technologies, but they're really hard to get. Um, and we think that microbes could help us get them more easily. So to start us off, what is a rare earth element and why is it important? Rare earth today, you know, they're really important. Um because they're, they're sort of ingredients of sustainable energy technologies like, uh, like electric cars, wind turbines, batteries, uh, not so much solar panels, also advanced electronics like uh, sort of LED, LCD displays, uh, memory, computer memory. Um, they're really like an integral part of the, the, the current and the future sustainable energy economy but they're just horrible to get at. And the U- US used to be the world leading producer of rare earths, but it it stopped doing it in the 90s because the, economic, the sort of environmental regulation surrounding mining and extraction drives the cost up. And, you know, we were willing to do that when we were the world's only, one of the world's only sources. Um, but the you know China was very willing to supply them very cheaply and sort of overlook the environmental consequences, uh, and and as a result we sort of became exceptionally dependent upon Chinese supply of rare earth elements, and you know this was this wasn't really a problem until about a decade ago, um, and and you know I think we've we've realized the sort of geopolitical significance of them. Um, and, but, you know, we need, we need, you know, we can't skirt, you know, we can't skirt sort of the environment, right? We can't sort of despoil the environment in the name of saving it. 
Uh, so we've got to figure out a more environmentally friendly way to ex to get them, uh, especially as world demand for them is likely to skyrocket. Um, and we also need to figure out a way to recycle them as well. Um, How are rare earth elements currently mined and what are some of the problems with this? Gosh, um, so, so where to start? So, so rare earths, despite the name, they're actually not that rare in the earth's crust. They're, they're less abundant than iron, but they're way more abundant than something like platinum or iridium. Uh, the problem is that there aren't with a few exceptions, uh, uh, there are there really aren't any seams of rare earths. Like you might find a seam of gold or a seam of iron. Uh, what you have to do is you you have to dig up an enormous amount of sand, and then from that sand get a small amount of rare earths out of it. Um, when you do this, so that in of itself is is sort of mildly horrible. Uh, but when you come to getting rare earths out of the sand, you also tend to extract a lot of things like thorium, which is a radioactive element. Um, this you know, requires high temperatures, uh, you know, a lot of energy input, you know, to sort of melt that mineral to grind it up. Um, you have to deal with the radioactive waste. Once you've finally gotten the rare earths out of that mineral, um, you still have to separate them from one another as well. Uh, and this, again, this is another sort of, you know, uh, a sort of chemical challenge. Uh, the rare earths are somewhat unusual in that they chemi chemically, they all look pretty much the same. Uh, so they're very difficult to separate from one another, even once you've separated them from all the other stuff that they come with. Uh, and, and, you know, again, this is, this is sort of a loud, chemically a pretty lousy process, high temperatures, caustic solvents. Um, we think that we can replace uh, both of these steps with biological alternatives that are a little bit more benign, or maybe a lot more benign. Yeah. And so could you tell me um, a little bit more about the specific microbes you're using and, and how they make this process better? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so I should actually I should back up a little bit and, uh, and mention that the idea of using microbes to mine metals is not new. Uh, there's this, uh, in fact, you know, twenty. I think it's twenty percent. I was amazed when I found this out. Twenty percent of the world's copper supply comes from um, comes from a microbial process that's. Um, that's done with this microbe called Acidophia bacillus. Uh, there's, a, there's a very famous mine in the Atacama Desert in, uh, in Chile uh, where they use this bug to extract copper from very low grade ore. And they just make a giant pile of the ore in the desert and they spray the bug on it and it digests the rock and the, the copper just trickles out onto a tarpaulin and, and they collect the leachate. Um, we're hoping to do the same with a microbe called gluconobacter. Um, what, it, what it does is it takes glucose, turns it into an organic acid, um, or a, a, a sort of a solution of acids and other lixivians. We don't know what they are yet, we, but we suspect they exist. That digests the rock and it removes, and it removes the rare earths from it how selective this is for rare earths 
we're not entirely sure. We we know from colleagues that some of that for some microbes, especially fungi, they can selectively release rare earths and not remove the other stuff. We're not totally sure if um, gluconobacter will do that. We hope it will, but we don't know for sure. Uh, so so that's that's the extraction step, right? That we we're going to replace with a bug called gluconobacter. The separation step is, is different. So we're going to use a bug called Shewanella onadensis. Uh, this is better known as a bug that makes electricity, uh, but it also turns out that it can biosorb metals onto its cell surface. And depending on the solution conditions, you know, the pH, the salinity, it will diff it will preferentially adsorb and it will preferentially desorb uh, different metals. So by changing the solution environment that you put the bug in, you can separate rare earths from one another. It's essentially a very it's a essentially the most selective separations membrane for rare earths that we know that exists. Um, and we're hoping to genetically engineer it to make it do it better. If you're just tuning in, this is Locally Source Science. I am Janani Hariharan, and we're talking to Dr. Buzz Barstow about using microbes to mine rare earth elements. Yeah, no, that's that's fascinating. Um, and as I'm listening to you talk, I'm realizing that this is obviously um, a technology and a project that has so many um, real world applications. And I'm wondering what you think the challenges would be um, in, in terms of scaling this up and taking it from the lab to the field. Let's look at that. Let's take a look at that sort of that bug, the wild type bug as it stands today. Um, Yoshko Fujita's group at Idaho, they actually, they did a techno-economic analysis on, on gluconobacter and uh, sort of extraction of rare earth elements from waste. Um, the only feedstocks that they could find that was profitable were spent fluid cracking catalysts that are used in the oil industry for refining oil and the gasoline. Uh, those feedstocks, they actually have a negative cost. The, the oil industry will basically pay you to take them off their hands. So your feedstock has a negative cost. Uh, the, the, the things that really drive the, the cost of extracting rare earth elements from them are heating, so you're keeping the bug at temperature, and agitation. And those, you know, those cost money because they cost electricity. So anything that you can do that will reduce the amount of time it takes to extract rare earths is a, is a good thing. It'll improve, it'll, it'll drop your costs. And so it will allow you to use feedstocks that are increasingly expensive. Um, so hopefully you can go from something that's negative cost to something that's slightly positive cost. Um, and increasingly dilute. So the sort of, I would consider the sort of gold standard to be like, um, say virgin ore that you get out of a mountainside or something. Um, or it could be, it could be fly ash from a coal fired power plant. So somehow we need to figure out how to accelerate the reaction. And I think Alexa has already 
figured some of this out. So, so what she's done is she's, um, she's, she screened the knockout collection. There's their gene. I think Glucanobacter, she found that it has, I think 2,700, there are such about non-essential genes that she can knock out. Um, and she's found about, I think it was 92 last time I, I wrote it down, genes that can modulate that. So, so the idea is that we will, there, there are some genes, there's about, I think it's about 10. When you knock them out, you can accelerate the product, you can accelerate the production of, um, you can accelerate the acidification of the media. So what we're going to do is we're going to upregulate those. Th there is also another handful of genes that when you knock them out, the acidification goes, um, slower so we're going to upregulate those um and then hopefully at the end of the day we're going to combine all these uh, up and down regulations and make a bug that operates much much faster than the wild type um we think that is going to get you know i'm going to stress think that's going to get us to sort of a scale upable bug um there are probably going to be other challenges along the way as well um I hope that by having a, a good understanding of the genetics that, you know, we don't really have right now, by having that and, and having tools to get at it, we can sort of get through this sort of design, build, test process much, much faster. Thanks for listening. For Locally Sourced Science, this is Jenny Hariharan. If you are just tuning in, you heard Janani Hariharan interviewing Dr. Buzz Barstow on his research into sustainable rare earth extraction. Next up, Esther Bercusen interviews Dr. Inger Zebel, the climate change education manager at the Paleontological Research Institution. Dr. Zebel is one of the curators of the new exhibit called Changing Climate, Our Future, Our Choices, that will be opening soon at the Museum of the Earth in Ithaca. The exhibit provides an explanation of how, over a period of hundreds of thousands of years, planet Earth had natural cycles of changing climate. Now, human activity has led to increases in greenhouse gas emissions, leading to warming of the planet and extreme changes in climate. In the interview, Zabul also talks about ways that individuals can alter their lifestyle choices and become advocates to urge their communities to take actions to combat climate change. I'm Esther Rakusin for Locally Sourced Science. The year 2020 has been a difficult one, to say the least. Countries all around the world are dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. The Philippines has just been struck by the strongest storm of the year, Typhoon Goni. This year's Atlantic hurricane season has produced a record 28 named storms, while in the same year, a number of Western states suffered from wildfires Climate change effects may have contributed to some of these environmental catastrophes. But what is climate change and what can people do to curtail its impacts, such as extreme weather events? A new virtual and live exhibit at the Museum of the Earth at the Paleontological Research Institution, or PRI, in Ithaca, provides a window into the causes of climate change, its impacts, and ways that individuals can act to help slow its progression. The exhibit, Changing Climate, Our Future, Our Choices, can be viewed online right now at museumoftheearth.org. 
It will be on display later on in the month and can be seen at the Museum of the Earth. To learn more about the exhibit, I spoke with Dr. Ingrid Zabel, Climate Change Education Manager at PRI. She is one of the creators of the new exhibit. First off, I asked Ingrid why PRI decided to present this exhibit. Part of it is um, simply practical in that we have had a permanent exhibit in the Museum of the Earth about climate change and energy. Uh, it's been there over 10 years, and we felt it was time to update it uh, because, of course, the science has progressed and uh, a lot of things have changed in society. But I guess I would say more broadly, um, if you think about the Museum of the Earth, the, the story that's told there is about the history of life on Earth. And climate change is a, a thread that runs throughout that story. Um, so it's, it's already an important part of understanding um, how life has changed um, throughout the course of the Earth's history, climate affects life and life affects climate. So it's a natural fit with the other themes and the, the rest of the permanent exhibits in the museum. The exhibit starts out with a timeline showing how over the last 800,000 years, the temperature on Earth and the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has gone up and down in cycles. And these are these very clear cycles that we see uh, in the geologic record going back 800,000 years. Uh, we know about these cycles because of research that's been done on ice cores. So scientists have drilled down into the Antarctic ice sheet and the Greenland ice sheet, and also into mountain glaciers all over the world, and extracted these cores of ice, these cylinders of ice. And it turns out that um, they are a record of past climate and past atmospheric CO2. And they're very exquisitely detailed record because um, you can track annual layers of ice. So it turns out that the snow that falls, say, on the Antarctic ice sheet um, in the winter and the summer differs from the season to season. And so you can get these annual layers and you can count the years going back in time. And the deeper you go into the ice, the farther back in time you go when that snow fell, let's say, I don't know, 200,000 years ago, it eventually more snow fell on top of it and more snow and it got packed down and turned into ice. And the air that existed in the atmosphere at the time the snow fell gets trapped in these little bubbles. And so scientists can do chemical analysis of the air in those bubbles from a long time ago and find out what the chemical composition of the atmosphere was at that time. Turns out you can do some analyses of ratios of different isotopes, uh, oxygen isotopes in the ice itself, and that tells you something about the temperature at the time that snow fell. It turns out that the fluctuation in surface temperature and carbon dioxide concentrations are due to cyclical changes in Earth's rotation and orbit, and they are called Milankovitch cycles. Here, Ingrid explains these changes. Yeah, those cycles of uh, warmer and colder, or more atmospheric CO2, less atmospheric CO2, come about because of what are called Milankovitch cycles. And those are named after a, a Serbian mathematician who worked out the theory behind them. And they have to do with changes in 
the Earth's orbit around the sun and in the Earth's tilt, uh, the tilt of its axis and sort of a wobble around its axis. And each of those things has some periodicity, some repetition. But it turns out when you add up those three factors, you get this repetition on the order of 100,000 years where um, the, the Earth gets warmer and cooler. Um, so what does that have to do with carbon dioxide? So there's, there are feedback mechanisms. For instance, if it's one of those cycles where um, we are getting more incoming solar radiation because of our, uh, the Earth's orbit and tilt and wobble and so on, uh, then you get more melting of ice uh, in the polar regions. You get more exposure of open water. You get more exposure of land and you get you get an increase in CO2 and methane going into the atmosphere from those um, land surfaces. And then there, there's a feedback mechanism because then the more CO2 you have in the atmosphere, the more warming you get. So you get even more warming. The timeline on view at the Museum of the Earth shows that starting around 1850, the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere starts to increase beyond past levels. Those levels never rose above, say, 275 parts per million during the past 800,000 years. Today, the amount of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere is over 400 parts per million, and it is still rising. Here, Ingrid talks about the greenhouse effect, which is the process by which gases in Earth's atmosphere absorb heat and help keep the Earth warm. Greenhouse gases are gases that absorb energy and then re-radiate it at particular parts of the electromagnetic spectrum. And this happens to be at what we call long wavelength infrared energy. So what happens is, um, you know, the sun is radiating out light. The sun sends out visible light and infrared light and ultraviolet light. It radiates most strongly uh, in the visible part of the spectrum. So that's the light that we see. Um, and then by the time that that energy has passed through the atmosphere and you have sunlight getting to the Earth's surface, um, some of the infrared radiation from the sun has been absorbed in the atmosphere. So really what comes down to the Earth's surface is mostly visible light. And some of that light will be reflected by the Earth's surface, but some will be absorbed and that warms up the Earth. And then, um, then the Earth radiates energy um, you know, the Earth doesn't just keep absorbing, absorbing, absorbing. It, it also radiates because there's some energy balance. But the Earth is much cooler than the sun. It doesn't glow visibly. It radiates this long wavelength infrared energy. So that radiates up into the atmosphere. And then these gases, so it could be carbon dioxide, could be methane, could be water vapor, um, chlorofluorocarbons, which are human-produced gases, and they absorb this infrared energy. And they'll start to, those molecules, when they absorb it, they'll start to vibrate, they'll start to move faster, they'll collide into other molecules. Um, and that increased motion is, um, raises the temperature of the atmosphere. So the more of those types of gases that are in the atmosphere, the more the temperature uh, increases. So there are some natural sources of greenhouse gases, but really what's causing the increase in temperature and increase in concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere today is human activities, primarily burning fossil fuels. 
If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Locally Sourced Science. I'm Esther Rakusin, and I'm speaking with Dr. Ingrid Zabel, the Climate Change Education Manager at the Paleontological Research Institution. She's talking about a new exhibit at the Museum of the Earth at PRI called Changing Climate, Our Future, Our Choices. I asked Ingrid, what are some of the climate change effects that we would see locally? Climate change um, will make drought in certain parts of the country more likely. And I think the projections for, for New York State are that we are projected to have an increase in the intensity and maybe frequency of late summer droughts in the future. She also talked about how climate change might affect biodiversity. Here she explains. Biodiversity is the the broad range of different forms of life we have, different plant and animal species. You know, some animals are uh, well, and humans too, though maybe we don't think of it this so much, you know, very sensitive to changes in temperature, changes in, in water availability. Here, Ingrid talks about how climate change can lead to some of the extreme weather events, such as drought and wildfires and intense hurricanes in different parts of the world. I think it is confusing to people sometimes when they hear about climate change and they hear we're maybe expected to see more drought, but we're also expected to see more heavy rainfalls. I mean, mean, we're already seeing that, but that's projected to continue to happen. So what is it, what does that mean that it's getting drier, but it's getting wetter at the same time? Like, (laughs) how could that be? As the temperatures increase in the atmosphere, um, those higher temperatures can dry out the soil more. So um, it can lead to a a reduction of, of soil moisture. But um, warmer air can also hold more water vapor. So the atmosphere is sort of primed, holding more water vapor so that when you do have a storm, when you do have rainfall, it's a heavier rainfall. You have more rain falling in a short period of time than we used to. Mm -hmm. So you can sort of have both things happening at once. There is no question that climate change poses an extremely difficult challenge to those around the world who seek solutions to this crisis, such as the United Nations Group Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. But what can individuals do at home? Here, Ingrid directs viewers to look at the solutions part of the exhibit. Well, the exhibit does contain a large section on solutions. Uh, And solutions are partly how do we adapt, you know, how do we learn to live with climate change, but also what can we do to to reduce it, to stop it, possibly even to reverse it. Um, And so there are solutions at the societal scale of, um, you know, really rethinking our energy systems and moving to low carbon energy sources, such as solar and wind and um, geothermal uh, heat pumps or ground source heat pumps to heat and cool buildings. Um, But there are also solutions that we can take on as individuals. Um, So things we can do in our daily life in our homes and the exhibit has a sort of miniature house with rooms in it and different energy choices you can make in each room and it lets you see the impact of those energy choices on carbon emissions. The goal is to help people 
think about what they can do and think about the, you know, which actions might be higher priority than others. There is also an interactive portion of the exhibit. Here, Ingrid explains it. Well, definitely one big part of the exhibit or one of our goals is to get people talking about climate change. So throughout the exhibit, there are questions for people to think about or maybe talk about with each other as they visit the museum. And then the exhibit has a feedback station where we are um, posting news about climate change. It might be about climate science. Um, it might be about um, technological advances um, that might help move us towards better climate solutions. It might be about social science issues related to climate change. Anyway, we'll post some news, um, you know, rotating it maybe every two weeks or so, and then people can respond to that. So they can, um, there'll be a question about the news and they can type in a text response at this feedback station or they can record a video of themselves responding. So it's a way to, again, to get people thinking and talking about climate change with each other. Again, you can visit the virtual exhibit at museumoftheearth.org. The live version opens later this month at the museum, located at 1259 Trumansburg Road in Ithaca. You must make reservations ahead of time. So plan ahead. For Locally Sourced Science, I'm Esther Rakusin. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Locally Sourced Science. This week, you heard Janani Hariharan interviewing Dr. Buzz Barstow of Cornell University and Esther Rakusen interviewing Dr. Ingrid Zibel of the Paleontological Research Institute. I, Liz Mahood, was your host. We thank Joe Lewis for the introduction and Blue Dot Sessions for the music. If you'd like to learn more about locally sourced science, listen to archived episodes, or subscribe to our podcast head to our website at www.locallysourcescience.org.